not sure if you've ever noticed it, but that song we just sang is Ephesians 1 condensed. You remember the three times repeated to the praise of his glorious grace in Ephesians 1? The first verse of that song tells us, and we sing of the Father's work. The second verse, the Son's work. The third verse, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And all ends with the refrain, to the praise of his glorious grace. So we've just sang Ephesians chapter 1. And if you would open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at two verses, the second and the third. Last week we looked at the sweeping statement of verse 1, where Paul says that all mankind in their natural condition are dead in trespasses and sins. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins... We saw that that pointed to to two things. We were transgressors of the law of God, therefore we were rebels against him. And then just the general word sins means that we did not measure up or did not hit the mark of God's righteousness, so we were failures. So we're guilty before him. We noted that this applies to all of mankind. Romans 5 helps us. In Adam, all died. Sin has spread to all men. We didn't look at this verse last week, but it applies to this thought as well. Psalm 51, the psalm of David's repentance, he says there, In sin did my mother conceive me. I like what Curtis Vaughn says of this first verse. This is the way he summarizes it. He says, It is as though the whole world were one vast graveyard, And every gravestone bears the same inscription, dead in sin. Well, the next two verses that we're going to look at this morning talk about the particulars of this spiritual deadness, the deadness of those who are yet alive, physically alive. So if you'll read with me, I'm going to reread verse 1 and then read down through the end of verse 3. Paul says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we, Lord, we bow in submission to your word. We're humbled by it, that out of this condition you have saved us. Out of such deadness you have brought life. You have raised us together with Christ. The same power that raised Christ from the grave has been operative in us and has brought us to faith in him. Father, help us to be filled with gratitude, to be humbled, to be thankful. We ask you now to open your word to us that we may receive it joyfully, that we may be all the more thankful for what follows in the fourth verse. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. I don't know how your Bible places the words on the page. The third verse is the last on the page for me. And I'm thankful that it fell out that way. Because when you turn the page over, you get to verse 4. And Lord willing, next week we're going to get to verse 4 and we're going to revel in all of that glory of what God has done in spite of this description of mankind in the first three verses. But before we can get to verse 4, we have a little work to do to see the desperate condition of mankind. And really, until we see it, verse 4 will not shine as brightly as it ought. And so last week, looking at verse 1, you can consider verse 1 as the general heading of Paul's condemnation of all mankind, including himself, all Gentiles, all Jews, all races, all statuses, doesn't matter, all of mankind is condemned as being dead in trespasses and sins. And then the second and third verse, it's like we look beneath that and we see the captivity, the dominion, the enslavement. And isn't that what Paul says? Isn't that what he says in the sixth chapter of Romans? He's there talking about the enslavement to sin. He's saying, now that you're saved in Romans 6, do not any longer present your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness in which you were once enslaved. I don't know that we see and give the full force of these verses very often. What Paul is describing for us in these first three verses is a condition in which or out of which no man can break free. This is a condition of condemnation, utter helplessness and despair. And men aren't even aware of it, usually. I think he's going to prove that to us in these second and third verses. Last week we said that this death that Paul is speaking of here, this spiritual death can and should be equated to physical death. There is a comparison that can be made. Just as a physical corpse has no feeling, no, no use of sense, no pulse, no life, the spiritually dead have no spiritual feeling. They have no spiritual sense. They have no spiritual pulse. They have no spiritual life. And I gave you the words from Spurgeon last week. I'll remind you here. He says, why else would Paul even invoke this figure if this isn't what he meant to convey? Why even bring up this deadness? Well, then immediately what happens is the pushback against that is what about the general morality and goodness and kindness of some unbelievers? How do you answer that question? Well, I think the best way to answer it, rather than seeing these things in their lives as potential to possess spiritual life, we should see it as displays of God's common grace to them. Let me give you a verse to back that up. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this. We're jumping right into the middle of a verse, 45 of chapter 5. 
Speaking of his Father in heaven, he says he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So I think we can settle in our hearts and in our minds based upon the totality of Scripture that we are not justified by works. We're quick to affirm that. We are not justified by works. But can we be just as quick? We should be just as quick to say we are not justifiable by our good works. In other words, our good works evidenced prior to conversion do not make us of the sort that are justifiable before God. Even those good things that are exhibited in lost humanity that perhaps even we evidenced before our conversion, even those good things are done through being blind and deaf to the things of God. Think about Jesus' conversation with the rich young man. We would see him as one full of potential. We would see him as one that was ready to, to take the step into the kingdom. The conversation goes like this in Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And do you remember the reply of the rich young man? Done all of this. I have done all of this from my youth. I'm moral. I'm upstanding. I keep the commandments of God. But Jesus, in the 22nd verse, said, He said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And that leads to Jesus saying how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples then, perplexed, who then can be saved? And what does Jesus say? With men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Along these same lines, Ian Hamilton has written, the same lines being, what about the goodness of lost men and women? What about the morality and the ethical conduct of lost men and women? He says their disobedience may be cultured and even religious, highly religious, but ultimately there is a refusal to bow the knee to Christ and embrace him in their heart as the Lord of as the Lord and the only Son of God. So really what we're looking at here in these first three verses, this is a picture of a pre Christian state, and it is devastating to any suggestion that we possess the ability to act or believe in such a way as to save ourselves or to help God in doing so. This completely annihilates all of that thought. What we see here by the time we end the third verse is mankind or a humanity or an individual who is left completely helpless and dependent on God 
That's what makes the fourth verse such a great verse in our Bible. I think we can affirm not all who are dead in sin are devils. Not all who are dead in sin act out their deadness to the same degree. Not all are Hitlers. But nonetheless, they are held captive by the devil and stand in great need of one stronger than he to come in and bind him and set them free. So in verses 2 and 3, Paul uses the blackest paint that he can find and he paints with the broadest brush that he can find over fallen humanity. He writes of their walk, their conduct, the way they conducted themselves. Again, Ian Hamilton calls this the trilogy of dominating powers that shapes the whole order of the believer's pre-Christian experience. What are these, what is this trilogy of dominating powers that shapes the believer's pre-Christian experience? Well, Paul calls them the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, and the lust of the flesh. These are three links of the same chain that keep all humanity bound in the deadness of their sin. And humanity does not possess individually or collectively the ability to break free. Let us remember before we go on that mankind has gotten himself into this predicament. In Genesis, after God created all things, he said of it all, it's good. He gave commands, one specifically that was not to be transgressed. That commandment was transgressed. And then mankind was plunged into spiritual deadness. Spiritual deadness mankind remains in apart from the work of Christ. So let's look at these verses and see the detail with which Paul gives concerning the great need of humanity or the dominion that the lost world is under. He says again in verse 2 of this deadness in sin and trespasses, he says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. The word walked is often used in both testaments. Psalm 1 might immediately come to mind where we are given the blessedness of that man who does not walk in certain spheres. You can't get away from it when you read Paul's epistle. It's, it's something that he uses often to describe the way that Christians or non-Christians live. But let's look ahead just a little bit, and we're going to see the first ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are, are marvelous, aren't they? So look at verse 2. Paul's talking about the deadness and the walking according to the course of this world. But just flip over. Maybe you don't have to turn the page like I do and look at verse 10. 
Verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this great paragraph begins with a walking in deadness and ends with a walking in life. It begins with being enslaved to the dominion of the prince of the power of the air, to Satan himself, and it ends in the glorious liberty of the sons of God, walking now freely, led by the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so Paul here with great wisdom, and I think with literary skill, he begins with a walking and he ends with the walking, but how great the transformation from one to the other. Salvation changes the way you walk. What I mean by that is salvation changes the way you live. Salvation changes the way you conduct yourself. Salvation changes everything about you. You're no longer who you once were. You've been made new. You've been given a new heart that has new appetites, new desires. And that's represented by the 10th verse and really beginning in verse 4 all the way down through verse 10. But notice here that he says as a description of one dead in sin that you walk according to the course of the world. Some of your translations read differently or you may have notes in the margin or, in, or as a reference that would tell you that it could mean this or to read it in this way according to the spirit of the age. I think that's a faithful representation of what the scriptures are getting across to us here. Our walk before Christ was not according to his word and righteousness, but it was according to the spirit of the age or the course of the world. And what was, is still today that course? Well, would you look with me? We read this verse earlier this morning in our first hour study, but if you'll look at the book of 1 John, chapter 2. And look at verse 15. Verse 15 says to the Christian, do not love the world or the things in the world. And, and just know there that by things, John is not referencing primarily the material things. That would apply, but that's not his primary reference. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. This is what some call the trinity of evil in the world. The trinity of evil being the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the things that characterize or categorize the things in the world. This is what dominated our pre-Christian thinking, our pre-Christian living. 
And I think Paul presents them to us in Ephesians 2 as those things by which we were once held captive. We once walked in them according to the course of the world. All things that are opposed to Christ, these are the very things in which we were once immersed and in which we walked, we reveled in them, we enjoyed them. They were the things in which we found our greatest joy. We walked according to the course of the world, but there's more that Paul says. Not only did we fall in with the rest of humanity and go after the things that they go after, he says, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is Paul talking about? Who is the prince of the power of the air? It's the adversary. It's Satan. It's the devil himself. This world system dominated by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is his domain. Though it is his domain, we must be thankful that he is as a beast on a chain. There are limits. There are places that he cannot go. And I'm not talking about physical places. There are limits to his activity. But even with that limit being placed upon him by Christ, we know that the scriptures tell us of him that he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. That he is the father of lies. That he is the enemy of all truth. That he is, he is a lion seeking whom he may devour. He is the one who sifted Peter as wheat. And if Christ had not prayed for Peter, what might the outcome have been? Satan was bold enough to enter the wilderness and to tempt Christ himself. He is the one that holds all of lost mankind in his clutches. We lived once dominated by the dominion of the devil and make no doubt his goal is to take you to hell with him. He wants to keep you in this realm of deadness. He doesn't want you to be liberated. And he will do all that he can to make sure that your eyes are filled with good things. That the pride which wells up in you is tainted in a seemingly positive direction. And all of those lusts of the flesh, he will give you just enough of the goodness of those things to keep you going after them before the destruction of them finally sets in. I want you to look at a verse with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 because I think this is helpful when we begin to think of those outside of Christ, ourselves included, being outside of Him, walking according to the prince of the power of the air. If you look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, 
Paul talks about the God of this age. And there it's a reference again to Satan, the adversary. The God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is to be equated with the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.3. But notice the activity of the God of this age in verse 4. I'll begin in verse 3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. This is the activity of the adversary. This is the enslaving activity of the adversary that I think is portrayed by the second part of this when Paul says that he is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Notice that Paul says that this activity of the prince of the power of the air is a present activity. It is now working in the sons of disobedience. And so you put both of these things together. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. I like these words. I'm not sure who this man is, but he says the point must be to emphasize how closely the power of evil crowds in upon human life, impregnating the very atmosphere in which we live. So when Paul is saying that in dead, deadness and trespasses and sins, according to this, according to this, according to this, he's saying that it is according to the very things with which or in which we live and move and have our being before Christ. We can't get away from it. We can't break free from it. We are enslaved to it. Notice he says here, that this spirit is at work in the sons of disobedience. Pointing back to their own responsibility for finding themselves in this condition. Why? Disobedience. And then he says in the third verse, among whom also we all conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of both the flesh and of the mind. Notice the use of his language here. He says, we all. And as you begin reading this second chapter, you're going to note that Paul is going back and forth between the Jew, the Gentile, the Gentile, and the Jew. But there are certain times where he just lumps everyone together. And this is one of those times all Jews, all Gentiles outside of Christ prior to conversion were conducting themselves in the lusts of their flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now let's take a step away from this for a moment and try to make at least one application of it. One of the results of being dead in trespasses and sins is that your focus is always only on horizontal things. You do not have a vertical eye to look to heaven, to look to God. Everything is kept here and relates to the world system, what the world has to offer. As I thought about this week, I thought what a mercy of God it is 
that it would rightly be said of us like it's said of Abraham in Hebrews 11, that he was waiting for another city. His eyes had been shifted off of the here and now, the temporal, the fleeting, the passing, that is all tainted by sin, held under the sway of the wicked one. He no longer lived only for the things this world had to offer, but he had a spiritual eye. He had an eternal eye that looked for another city whose builder and maker is God. If you've been given that eye, know that that eye only comes from Christ himself. Know that that comes through awakening of the Spirit. Because everything, every bit of this condemnation that is being heaped by Paul upon those who are not Christians is being heaped upon this life. And this life being all that there is. That there is nothing else. There is no belief in eternal life. That's why the, the great vast mass of humanity, I think this would bear out, believes in annihilationism. When this life is over, it's just over. And at best, you get recreated and come back to this life as something different. All of those kinds of religious thought permeate this kind of deadness because there is no, it's like there is a cap that can't be busted through and can't be peered through until the Lord comes and He gives those eyes of faith to be able to see spiritual things. And so back to what Paul says here in the third verse. He says, We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh. And then he qualifies that in two ways by saying, Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Notice the word fulfilling. No boundaries. Nothing to hold you in check. But perhaps your own sense of morality, which given enough time, given enough temptation, will find an end. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh. The actual bodily appetites. I think is what Paul has in mind here. Because then he says, end of the mind. Those things that, those sinful things that the body craves and goes after. Those sinful thoughts. Is it any wonder why in another place Paul would say that our minds must be renewed? That we must be washed and we must be cleansed? And then we get down to this phrase in the third verse. Perhaps the most frightening of all of them. And we're by nature children of wrath. What a despised concept today is the wrath of God. No one wants to talk about it. Can I give you a warning? Beware of getting your theology from contemporary Christian radio. You're not going to hear a song about the wrath of God. 
We have to build our theology of God around the scriptures. So while this is a much despised concept today, the scriptures do not shy away from declaring the wrath of God. The just, holy wrath of God upon the sons of disobedience. Notice Paul says that we were this by nature. This was inherited from Adam. This is something we don't have to be taught. We don't have to be taught how to sin, do we? It comes natural to us. And the product or the fruit of this nature is being the children of wrath, just as the others. So again, Paul includes everyone into this line of thought as he condemns all of humanity before God as being spiritually dead outside of Christ by nature children of wrath. But any wonder why the scriptures are full of verses like this, flee the wrath which is to come. Or even, let's look at this, go to John chapter 3, I'm sure that many of you could quote great portions of this third chapter concerning Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, the necessity of the new birth. But let me remind you of the way John chapter 3 ends. Just look at the last verse. We could look at more, but the last verse will suffice. John chapter 3, verse 36 He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So what does Paul mean when he says, by nature we were children of wrath just like the rest? What he means is, for all of those who were outside of Christ, all, all inclusive, are objects of the wrath of God. That's why Paul and John would write to us about how Jesus Christ is the one who rescues us from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a a just reaction of the holiness of God to sin. The wrath of God is His just reaction to the sinfulness of humanity. Notice the walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, we all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What is the fruit of all of this? The fruit of all of this, or what is the just deserts of this, is the wrath of God. Any person outside of Christ sitting here this morning, we can say that you are an object of the wrath of God. And the reply to that may be, well, look how good my life is. Look at how many things I have. 
Look at my family. Look at what I drive. Look at my bank account. What do all those things point to? You're under the umbrella of the temporal sphere. You're not pointing to anything outside. You are limited to the things that this life has to offer and you find your greatest fulfillment and your greatest joy in these things, but yet you remain under the wrath of God. And when we think about the wrath of God, oftentimes we go to it's the full fury of God's wrath, right? The, the hellfire, the brimstone that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah. The same thing is told us in the scripture is going to be the way that this world system finds its ultimate end under the wrath of God. But I don't think we often realize that there are more subtle ways that the Lord pours out his wrath upon a people. We don't have to look very far before we find it. You're familiar with Romans chapter 1. Do you realize that beginning with the exchanging of the truth of God for the lie and God just leaving people alone in it is the beginning of his wrath upon them? Because where does it lead them? It leads them to places that we don't want to go, right? We don't often think of that type of passive wrath. We think of the activity of God's wrath. But a passive aspect of the wrath of God is just to leave people alone in the deadness of their sin and let them work it out. And in a sense, they are heaping up for themselves condemnation and judgment. So don't be fooled by the fact, if you're sitting here reasoning in your mind, how can I by nature be a child of wrath? My life is just too good. I've got too much. My family is too good and kind. and uh, People all around me think of me as a kind, good, and generous person. How can you say that I am a child of wrath? I can only say that because the Scriptures say that. I have no authority to say it. But then I would attach to that a desperate plea for you to flee the wrath that is to come more fully. Just because all may be going well for you now doesn't mean that it will end well for you. The wrath of God is holy. It is just. And isn't it interesting when we rebel against the idea of God being a God of vengeance and wrath, what are we really rebelling against? That part of his character, right? You know, it's, you, it's those of you who listen to contemporary radio, and I, I listen to it, a lot of it I enjoy, but every time this song comes on, I just have to turn it down. There's only love in the heart of God, right? No, there's not. Don't sing that. There is so much more there than that. There is love there. He is love. But there is so much more in him than that alone. He is a God of wrath. 
He is a God of vengeance. He is a God of justice and all rightly so. When we rebel against God's wrath, have you ever equated the sense that it was God's wrath that put Christ on the cross? Do you really want to remove that aspect of God, of his wrath? If you do, then there's no mediator. There's no one to stand between you and God. The greatest expression of the wrath of God is found at Calvary. And it's really amazing to see how some people think about the wrath of God. That's not my God. He's love. He dispenses joy and happiness. Can I encourage you to go back and read the Gospels? Go back and read Psalm 22, where Jesus uses those words of that messianic psalm, and while he is on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experienced the full fury of the wrath of God. He is drinking it to the last dregs. So how can we for a moment say if God would not spare his own son in holy justness and pour out wrath upon him, that he will not in time pour out wrath upon the rest of his creation that does not come to faith? You want to use logic? You want to use reason? There you go. God is a God of wrath. He will not be overcome by sentimentality in the end. If He were, He would have stayed His hand at Calvary, but He did not. If He were a God of love only and sentimental, that's the way so many people think about God as being you know, the grandfather in the sky that just makes threats but doesn't actually have the ability to carry them out or the heart to carry them out. But that's who he is. He didn't stay his hand at Calvary. He will not stay his hand on the day of wrath. What should this thought do? Should we, we should glory in this because it's a revelation of who God is, but it should also drive us to our knees and really fan the flames of our evangelistic zeal. If we really believe that those who are outside of Christ are dead in trespasses and sins, that they are walking according to the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of the devil himself is working in them. I think there's a contrast here between the work of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit, and then the Spirit of the Prince of the Power of the Air producing the vast, directly opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. If we believe that those that are in this condition are held captive there, they're enchained there, And that the only thing that is going to break the chain is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we really and truly believe that, how can we not be preachers of the gospel? If we really believe the wrath of God is abiding on those outside of Christ, how can we not lovingly stand before them and call them to come to Christ? This changes the way I think 
we should view the lost masses around us. When we see what Paul is saying in these first three verses, this definition of man's depravity, and that's what this is. And again, depravity doesn't mean that all of lost humanity works that out to its full end. But when we see that the lost mass of people around us are dead in sin and trespasses just like we were, it shifts the focus away from their works that repulse us to their desperate condition which should make them objects of our pity. Is it right for us to see the outworking of those who were dead in sin and be repulsed by it? I think to some degree, yes. It doesn't accord to the things of the Spirit of God. But that's no excuse for us to put up a fence and a wall and to say that we will not pity them. Because let me tell you, you and I would be right there with them if God had not intervened. So we could say something like this. The objects of God's wrath should be the same objects of His people's pity and of His people's evangelism. The best way to combat the rise of evil in any society is not to withdraw from it. It's not to curse against it. It's not to rail against it, but it's to preach the gospel to it. To preach the light. God, help us to do that. I think when we look at at these three verses and we compile it all together and we see how deep this grave is and how much dirt and rock and stone is piled up on top of it. Paul has painted a picture for us of the deadness of humanity that that has no remedy outside of Christ. I think we're led to that same question that the disciples asked Jesus, different context, but same question. Who then can be saved? Who? I saw something this week, Steve Lawson, those of you who who recognize that name, I may not get the quote exactly right, but he said something like this, there is no heart that God cannot conquer. There is no heart so desperately wicked, having lived out, worked out according to that nature, conducted itself according to the lust of the flesh and of the mind, the fulfilling of the lust of the flesh. There is no one in such a desperate condition that the Son of God cannot conquer them, save them, wash them, make them clean, bring them from being an object of wrath to an object of of his mercy. Is it any wonder then? Can we can we just get a little glimpse of the fourth verse? We all know it's a great verse. We all know it it begins with two great words, but God. But do you see it now? Those two words are peering down at this grave. They're peering down at the lostness of man's condition. And all of that which has entrapped and ensnared them by which they can't break free. And it's like a lightning bolt straight from heaven strikes down and just opens the grave. Aren't you thankful that that's what's happened in your life? That this lightning bolt from heaven, verse 4, 
just simply says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. That's the main verb of this entire paragraph. I told you last week it's borrowed and imported back to verse 1, but in Paul's mind and the way he wrote, I think intentionally he delayed it until the fifth verse. Until he painted as black a picture as he could possibly paint. Until he made things as desperate as they could possibly be made. Those who know language and linguistics and all of these far better than I tell us that these first three verses are full of long syllabled words that are just mundane and roll on and on and on. And then by the time you get to verse 4, the shift, the mood totally changes. There are now these exclamations that come in short, choppy words and senses that totally contrast all the deadness. There is life that is given. Aren't you thankful that God is rich in mercy? And that in the face of all of this, none of it was an obstacle for Him. It was an obstacle that we could not overcome, but one that He overcame for us in Christ. Will you not flee the wrath which is to come? Will you not come to Christ and find in Him a hiding place? Will you not come to the rock of ages cleft for you and hide yourself there in Him? That's what we're called to do. Without money. I said it last week. We sang it this week. Come to Jesus Christ and buy. You know, the prophets, one of the prophets asked the repetitive question, Oh, why would you die? Having been exposed to this type of gospel, realizing your own deadness, realizing your great need and then the greatness of your Savior, why in disobedient obstinance and pride would you choose death over life? God help you. God be merciful to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the darkness of the picture of the first three verses of this chapter, which only magnify your grace and mercy. Lord, I pray you would impress upon every heart the full force of these words, that we would see ourselves so desperate before you and in such great need. Lord, we're thankful for how this paragraph ends. This is only the beginning. Lord, I pray that you would awaken, that you would quicken, that you would raise the spiritually dead, that you would give eyes to see, ears to hear. Do it for Christ's sake. Do it so that there is another voice to be added to the choir of those who sing his praises. Do it for your own glory. Do it for the good of those who remain outside of him. We appeal to your mercy. We do so in Christ's name. Amen.